trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. Uh, just before we get going, I, I want to um, just again mention, uh, I know it's on a lot of our hearts and minds, but the, uh, the, 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 the story that continues to unfold in, um, in Israel and Palestine um, and uh, the, the, the terror that Gaza has, or that um, Hamas has brought, brought to that region and uh, just the ongoing uh, heartbreak of uh, all, the, all the details and uh, the, global, the global issues that seem to maybe be bubbling up uh, now too. And so uh, if you're trying to stick your head in the sand and not hear about that stuff, I, I kind of understand it's, it's, very, uh, it's very heavy and it's, it's very sad, <clears throat> but I would invite you to pray. Uh, it's a place of incredible trauma right now and a great deal of fear. And um, so I just... Uh, we want to continue to pray, pray for uh, all those uh, involved there uh, in the, that part of the Middle East. Uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been in chapters 5 through 7, are known as the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been in these chapters now uh, for a number of weeks. And today is our 27th part of, of the series itself, uh, but we've been in the Sermon on the Mount now for a few months, and um, we are into the heart of it. We actually, last week, we passed kind of the, the high point of the sermon, which if you were to map out the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, uh, that is actually considered the center of the center. And so we are, if this was a mountain that we were ascending, we are actually on our way down uh, the, the other side of the Sermon on the Mount uh, as far as content goes. Uh, but as I hope we'll see today, um, it might be the second half of the sermon, but Jesus is still uh, bringing some incredible uh, things that we need to uh, consider. Uh, so far, he's addressed the, the flourishing life uh, from his perspective in his upside-down kingdom. Uh, he's addressed, uh, he's, he's called his followers to be salt and light in the world. Um, he's, he's talked about how he thinks about the, the law. How does he engage what we call the Old Testament? Uh, what does he think about the content there? And he says, I didn't come to get rid of it, but I also didn't come to just give it a thumbs up. I came to, to turn the lights on. I came to fulfill it. Uh, to bring more light to it than, than you would have ever guessed. He's talked about anger and the fact that our general response in, in his culture, that in that moment, that their general response to was not to go deep enough with the issue of anger. Uh, the issue of lust, Jesus calls uh, them and us to go deeper on the issue of lust. Uh, divorce and remarriage, promises, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving to the needy, praying, fasting, uh, Jesus has touched on all of these things so far uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's a verse in, kind of towards the beginning of the sermon in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's, there's no kingdom for you. And what Jesus is, is inviting us into is this realization that what he wants of his followers is a righteousness that's better than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And to us, that might be like, well, they're all scoundrels. But in the first century, the first century Jew thought of the scribes and the Pharisees as the best of the best, the most righteous of the most righteous. And they looked at the scribes and the Pharisees and they thought, wait, we have to be more righteous than them? And Jesus is like, yes, you have to be more righteous than them. And what Jesus is talking about is a whole person righteousness, a righteousness that goes all the way down. Uh, and so Jesus is consistently digging deeper into our hearts than maybe is comfortable 
Uh, if you've been here through this series, like may, maybe there's been some Sundays where it's like, well, that hits awfully close to home. Like you're, you're getting down into the, into the tender parts. And like that, that, that's, that's where Jesus does his work. It's where he does his work. And so um, he's going to keep doing it uh, throughout, throughout, the, uh, throughout the entire gospel of Matthew, but certainly through the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take a look at what he wants to talk about uh, next. Uh, if you've been here through the series, you, you may notice this, but sometimes preaching, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there's some complexities to, to preaching through it. And I sometimes feel like it's almost like an, an accordion where it's like I'm reaching into a text, but then the, the next week it's like I've got to pull back and reach back into the previous text or reach into the next text a little bit, and then we're going to touch on that text again the next week. Uh, because, as, as we've said many times, this is a sermon. It's put together. It's knit together. And so these things all are interrelating. And today's text is really long. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 34. That's a lot of verses to cover on, uh, in one sermon. Um, and so, you know, obviously when you're trying to cover that many verses, there's going to be some things that we're not going to get to address fully. Uh, we will touch on this text a little bit again uh, next week. Um, and so I'm thankful uh, to be able to address it uh, again. Uh, but let, let's try to get the heart of what Jesus is inviting us to consider uh, throughout these verses. So we're going to look at, at, at two treasures two masters, and then two outcomes. So, two treasures. Um, maybe you've noticed this in our, in our culture, but uh, the idea of, ha- like, of binary options has kind of fallen out of favor. Uh, most of us don't like having just two options. We don't like just right or wrong. Uh, we don't like just you can take a left or you can take a right. We don't like just up or down. Um, uh, and, you know, like if, if you think of black and white, like go to Home Depot and look at the paint section. Look at how many pinks there are. Look at how many whites there are. There's hundreds and hundreds of shades of each of those colors. And it kind of reflects uh, the way that our culture has begun to think about a lot of subjects. We don't like binary options. We don't like just two options. Uh, and actually, there's, there's some wisdom there because the vast majority of our life's decisions are not uh, life and death. Uh, they're not actually right or wrong. Uh, most of the decisions we make actually are not that important. And so there are a variety of options. There is a ton of nuance. There are shades of, of, of gray or shades of, of options that, that exist. And so there, there's, there's wisdom there, but some things are binary. Sometimes there are only two options. Sometimes that's what is the situation. That's the reality. And as we come to this text, Jesus is leaning into a binary choice. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is setting before us two options. And he's giving the indication that there's not a third. And so there's this this sense in which he's, he's putting before us an option, a choice. And it's between two different treasures, two different ways of going about your life. Jesus contrasts earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. As you heard Jeanette read just a moment ago in verses 19 through 21, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus says, Okay, you know, this is, he does this quick analysis of the options. And he says one of these options is really fragile and fading. And the other option is steadfast and eternal. 
Jesus says that earthly treasure, which he says, do not lay up for yourselves earthly treasure. In other words, don't, don't go after that. That's, that's not the option that Jesus would suggest you pick. There's two choices. Jesus says, this is not the one. The, the earthly treasure that he just analyzed, it, it's fragile and it's fading. He says it's susceptible to corrosion. Like, have you noticed that the, the things of this earth are susceptible to corrosion? He, what, what, look, what, look at what he points out. He says it's susceptible to the corrosion of nature. He says moths come in and destroy. N- nature comes in and, and, and messes it up. Then he says rust. What's the deal with rust? That, apparently that, that Greek word could also be translated mildew. But it has this idea of time. It's something that happens over time. That, that rust over the course of time destroys earthly goods, material goods, that, that, that time, uh, the, the corrosion of, of time. And maybe you've experienced that with your body. <laughs> you know, the, the corrosion of time, that your body doesn't do what it used to do, that your body can't move like it used to move. Uh, maybe you have a car that has spent most of its life in northern Michigan, and uh, you, are ex- you are actually literally experiencing the rust uh, eating away uh, at, at your car. And so the corrosion of time, and then he points to the corrosion of humanity. He says that all these earthly goods, they're susceptible to thieves. They're susceptible to human beings coming along and, and destroying or stealing the things that you have acquired, the things that you have laid up. And Jesus says, that's fragile. That stuff's fading. Don't, don't, put your, don't put your treasure there. Don't put your hope there. On the other hand, heavenly treasure is impervious to those, those corrosions, to those dangers. You know, by definition, heavenly treasure is not subject to the brokenness of the earth. It's, it's putting your treasure in another place. It's pursuing something richer and deeper, something that is steadfast and eternal. Jesus is clearly saying that the wise choice is to pursue heavenly treasure. But then Jesus drops verse 21. You know, what, what, what is this about? Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will, all, will be also. And you know, you just look at this and you're like, you know, Jesus, like, it, it's, it's, his, it's his typical thing, isn't it? It's his typical thing. Jesus is never content with surface level stuff. He does not want you and I to read verses 19 and 20 and just check some arbitrary box. He says in, verse, in, in chapter 5 that we need a greater righteousness. That's a whole person righteousness. It's a righteousness all the way down. And so when Jesus talks about laying up treasure, he's not content to say, how much money did you give to your church this past year? He, he wants to get to the heart He wants to get down into your identity, down into your personhood. He wants to dig around in the tender places. And so he says, you know, hey, here's these two options. Here's these two treasures, earthly treasure, heavenly treasure. But then it's like, he has to go to the heart, doesn't he? He has to get to the heart. He has to take us to this place where it's it's tender and it's sensitive. And maybe it feels a little vulnerable. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is hinting that what you really want, your treasure, is who you really are. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. This is is actually going to reveal some very important things about who you are. 
about what's important to you. Well, how do you know where your treasure is? How do you know? I mean, verse 21 says, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. How do you know? Well, I am, I'm so glad you asked because Jesus is not done. And Jesus has some answers to that question. And I think that there's a real sense in which, whether it happens in the next 30 minutes or not, uh, if you were willing to sit with these verses in Matthew chapter 6, uh, I think that the only option here is to actually like literally buckle up. I don't know what he means. Like, I, I'm not sure what, he, what he's talking about. Well, it might make sense if we jump to verse 24 and then come back to that illustration. So if you jump to verse 24, this is what he says. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So right after this kind of odd eye illustration, he says, you cannot serve God and money. Can't serve two masters at once. Again, there's this binary choice. You can't, you can't have both. You have to pick one of them. Some, some versions, maybe your version says you cannot serve God or mammon. Or maybe you grew up hearing you cannot serve God or mammon. The, the word mammon is it's, it's a transliteration of an Aramaic word that just means money. And, and some people like the translation because it almost feels a little bit like it's uh, personified. Almost like the options are the God of money and the God of heaven. And so mammon, can, for some people, can almost feel like it, it, it personifies money. But it's just an Aramaic word that means money. And so Jesus says you can't serve both, not at the same time. It, it'll never work. You will love one and you will despise the other. Jesus is making the options really, really clear. And he's connecting this with what he just talked about in verses 19 and 20. Earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. He's helping us make the connections of what he's talking about. And so these, these two treasures are now being associated with two masters. You have to pick between God and money. You can't serve both. It won't work. Now, maybe you think you can serve both. Maybe you think that that's an option on the table. Well, Jesus doesn't mince any words. He just says, no, you can't. He's like, so if, if that's your opinion, we're not going to do some philosophical. No, it's, it, the answer is no, you can't. It's just that simple. You can't do it. But maybe you think you can opt out and say, I don't want those options. I'm not, I'm not going to serve anybody. I'm not going to serve anybody. Well, the answer to that one is, no, you can't do that either. Um, there's there's an, an author named David Foster Wallace um, who, who died uh, maybe about 15 years ago. And, and this is a, a quote from him. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. It was not a follower of Jesus. But as he's observing life, and David Foster Wallace was an extremely insightful guy, as he's observing life, this is his conclusion. Everybody worships. Here's your good news. You get to pick. You get to pick what you worship. But everybody is worshiping. We were built to worship. We were designed to worship. And that's, that's what's going to happen. You are going to worship. Or you know, as Bob Dylan famously wrote in 1979, you're going to worship somebody. Like you're going to worship somebody. And if you're familiar with that song, you know, he goes through the whole gamut. He puts every, basically every career field, every option on the table. And he's like, you can be in any of those seats. But guess what? 
You're going to serve somebody. And he says that over and over again, and it's a good reminder. So here's the problem. Whether you say, can I serve both, or I don't want to serve, I I think I can serve both, or I don't want to serve any, here's the problem. Most people think that they're not serving money. Most people think that they're not serving money. Uh, A guy who was basically a mentor to me from a distance, his name was Tim Keller, he died earlier this year. He he told a story one time that he was uh, asked to do a series of men's breakfasts at another church. And he was supposed to, each week, he was supposed to do um, uh, one of the seven deadly sins. And when he got asked to do it, his wife looked at him and said, I will tell you right now that the highest attendance will be the, 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 day, the day that you talk on lust. And the worst attendance will be the day that you talk on greed. And sure enough, he does the seven weeks, and that's exactly what happened. The, the, most of the men showed up for the day, the day he talked about lust, and the day he talked about greed, like it was the, it was the smallest attendance of all seven. And, and, and as Tim Keller reflected on that, he said, you know, why? He's like, I, I think the reason is, is because nobody actually thinks they're greedy. Nobody really thinks that they're greedy because we all know someone who's richer than us. We all have examples of other people who spend their money more frivolously, who spend their money on, on, on you know, more material things. And so we end up excusing ourselves and suggesting to ourselves, oh, if these are the options, I'm definitely not in the money option. That's definitely not the master that I have chosen. When Jesus started this little uh, section off, verses 19 through 21, you know, we all think, oh man, the difference between heavenly treasure, treasure and earthly treasure, yes, you know, heavenly treasure for sure. And here in verse 24, we're like, you know, yes, serve God for, you know, for sure. But that is why the illustration in verses 22 and 23 becomes so helpful. Here's what Jesus is saying with that kind of awkward eye illustration. Here, here's the point of it. He's saying that if you walk into a room and there's a light on, then as you walk through that room, you can walk through that room and not run into the furniture because the lights are on. But if you have bad eyes, it does not actually matter if the light is on because you can't see and you are going to run into the furniture. And it really doesn't matter if someone comes on, comes in the room and turns on another lamp or turns the lights up brighter. That's not the problem. The problem is is that your eyes can't actually see it. And so Jesus says, if your eyes are good, then you're you're going to be able to see. And if your eyes are bad, they're not going to be able to see, regardless of how much light is shining. Then interestingly, when Jesus uses the word um, healthy in verse 22, he talks about a healthy eye. That Greek word actually has a double meaning. And it means healthy or whole, but it also means generous. And in verse 23, when Jesus talks about the bad eye, that actually has a double meaning. And it can mean bad, or it can mean greedy. And Eugene Peterson, when he translated the Bible into the, um, into the message, he translated verse 23 this way. He said, squinty-eyed in greed and distrust. So instead of saying bad eyes, he translated squinty eyes with greed and distrust. And so what Jesus is saying is that we have a vision question that sits in front of us. And as we consider this debate of which master, we better be aware of the fact that we probably do not see as clearly as we think we see. 
that the windows, the eyes that we need to see this issue, the, you know, these are figurative. It's not physical eyes, obviously. It's figurative eyes. And Jesus is saying, when you look at the situation, when you make the analysis of which of these masters is actually the one that you're serving, don't trust your own judgment. Don't trust your own evaluation. Your eyes are probably not as reliable on this as you think they are. So, why does Jesus share this? Why does he share the illustration? Because he knows that money blinds us. That's part of what money does, is money blinds us, and we often don't even know it. Jesus is saying if your eyes are healthy and generous, then you can, you're going to be able to see this issue, you're going to be able to wrestle with this issue, and you're going to be able to like, uh, understand it. If your eyes are bad and greedy, you're going to be completely, you're going to miss this. It's going to zoom right over you. He says, if that's, the, if that's the window you've got to the world, then how great is the darkness? You're not even going to see this. This is going to fly right over your head. And you're going to be the, the, kind of a, um, more in that category of a person who says, oh, this isn't my problem. Oh, I, I, I don't have this problem. Because money blinds us. Watch out. Money has the power to blind and especially to blind us to the fact that we worship it. You know, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching, and somebody yells out from the crowd, and they have a question about finances. And as Jesus answers their question, and you can look it up in Luke chapter 12, Jesus answers this financial question, and this is what he says. Watch out! Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, now think about this. Why does Jesus say, watch out? Why, why, why does he say, watch out? J Jesus never says, watch out. You might be committing adultery. No, you, you know when you're committing adultery. Everybody knows when they're committing adultery. Jesus has to say, watch out for greed because we're often blind to greed. Jesus says, watch out because this is one of those sins that sneaks up on us, that like kind of wiggles its way into our life, that can happen progressively over time, that can almost be like the frog in the kettle, in the pot, that as the water gets hotter and hotter, we have no idea, we have no realization that little by little, money has begun to, to, uh, to, um, to, own, to own us. Uh, I've talked about this many times, but when Paul talks to Timothy about money, he says, be careful because money is a trap. And the Greek word that he uses for trap, it's a bird trap. And the trap was a noose. And the way the trap worked was it was actually to grab the leg of a, of a, of a bird. And as the bird tried to get away, what happens with a noose? It gets tighter and tighter. And Paul says, watch out. Money itself is not bad, but it's like a trap. And that trap is like a noose. And when you try to get out of it, it just gets tighter and tighter. That's why Jesus says, watch out to the person who has the financial question. I mean, have you noticed that money has the power to keep you from asking questions about how you spend your money? I mean, this is one of money's great powers, is that it actually causes you to want to just turn that conversation off. You don't actually want to sit down and ask yourself, how are we spending our money? It causes us to want to turn off the question how am I making my money? Is the way that I'm making my money actually bringing flourishing to the world? Or is it just bringing flourishing to my bank account? 
You see, the power of greed is that we don't ask. The power of greed is that we don't think about it. The power of greed is that we conclude or we assume that it's not true of me. And Jesus says, watch out. Your evaluation, your eyes are not as good as you think. I mean, a question would be, when's the last time that you've handed your budget over to someone else and said, do you think I'm spending too much money? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'd love to know if anyone in this room has done that. Invite someone else's eyes, someone else's gaze, another follower of Jesus to say, am I, am I, am I spending too much money on myself? But what, what does this budget say to you? What does this budget look like? I mean, have you noticed how hard it is to give money away to others? Have you noticed that there are some things that are probably really easy for you to give money to? And then other things that it's so, so hard for you to give money to. Um, I, you know, I am not much of a music person. And my daughters have gotten more and more into concerts. And if you have gone to a concert recently, do you, do you know what those things cost? They cost so much money. And I'm like, we have Spotify. Like, you, you can listen to this at our house. And it's right there, and you can listen to it over and over and over again instead of spending that kind of money to go to a concert because it's not just the ticket. You got to drive because, you know, no, 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 nobody comes up here. You have to go down there to get to the concerts. It's a night in the hotel. It's food. It's all of this money. And I look at it, and I'm like, no way. For them, man, it just flows right out of their hand. For them, going to that concert is life-giving and joyful. One of my daughters was at a concert last night, and she's texting our family. She's just having an incredible time. And it was a, it was a, a, a Christian group, and she's you know, worshiping her heart out. And so I'm super thrilled for all of those things. But compared to me, it's easy for her to spend that money on that concert. It is really, really hard for me to spend that money on that concert. And then there, you, you think of your list. What, what, what is the thing in, in, in your life that it's like, man, I can't imagine spending money on that. How dare people spend that much money on that? And then for someone else, it's like, it just flows right out of their hands. What, what's going on there? Why is it so easy to spend money on this thing and so hard to spend money on that thing? Could it be that that thing that you're spending your money on is actually giving you some sense of value? some sense of, of worth, some sense of significance. And the other thing, it doesn't. And so for those, your, your hands are clenched. But for the things that actually give you value, and worth, like, man, your hands are wide open. Now, now ask that question about your, your giving to the, to the treasures of heaven, to the things of God. How, how easy is it for you to give to the things of God? You know, at the beginning of chapter six, Jesus talks about giving to those in need. Giving to those who are hurting. And it's a very clear call that we should have a heart that wants to help those in need. How easy is it for you to give to that? How easy is it for you to support the work of God in the world? These are all questions that help us analyze, does money have more of a hold on me than I think it does? Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, none of that's true for me. I hate spending money on everything. I don't spend money on anything. Well, what could be going on there, right? What, what could be going on there is that you're actually finding money to be a sense of control, a sense of security, a sense of comfort, that for you, it's not about driving a certain kind of car 
or wearing certain kinds of clothes or going out to certain kinds of restaurants. For you, it's more the confidence that you have what you need to retire, that you have what you need to handle all the potential hiccups that might come your way in this world. Why does money have that kind of power? Why, why, why do we have such a hard time giving it away? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We live in the richest society that has ever existed in the history of the world. The amount of money that we consume on average per person in our, in our country, it's, it's, it's incredible. I think it, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of money. Let's just say that. It, it's, the, it's the most in the history of the world. And yet, the majority of, Christi- uh, the, the majority of Americans think they need more. Why, why is it so hard? Why, why does money have that kind of power? Why do we spend it so freely on some things and hate spending it a single cent on other things? Well, it's because money whispers all kinds of promises. Money offers uh, to be your significance. If you want to spend it on things to impress other people, to have certain resources. But money off- also offers to be your security. We've referred to this many times over the years, that money in some ways is like a secondary idol. You don't want money for money itself. You want money for what you think money can get you. And so that's why people use their money so, so differently. Because what you want is how you use your money. And Jesus is inviting us to say, be skeptical of your own evaluation here. Don't don't trust your own eyes here. There are two masters on the table Are you being honest with yourself? Because those things that money whispers, your significance, your security, your comfort, they are the very same things that God offers. And Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You will love one and despise the other. Well, two outcomes. If you notice in verse 25, the first word of verse 25 is, therefore, therefore I tell you. So after Jesus navigates this two treasures that then he reveals are really two masters, then he moves into this, the, the, these final verses and he offers us two outcomes. And Jesus shows us what life could look like by contrasting a life controlled by one master, money, with a life controlled by another master, the, the God of heaven, your father in heaven. So let's just read verses 25 through 31 and just walk through them because they're pretty self-explanatory. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, mainly what you will put on. It's not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So here Jesus is talking about things that money gets you, the things that money buys, food, clothing, Clothing was very expensive in, in, in this time, uh, in this period of time. They didn't have fast fashion where you wore a shirt two times and threw it away. It's like clothing were long term. You had them for a very, very extended period of time. And Jesus says, uh, you know, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about drink or food or, or clothing. Then he gives some examples. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, of more value than they? He says, the birds, they're not farmers. The birds aren't out there planting seeds and growing crops. They, they don't have a savings account. He's like, they, they don't do any of those things. And yet what happens? I, t- I take care of them. I provide, I provide for the birds. And you say, well, yeah, but there's human farmers. That God's saying, I developed that system. I, I'm, I'm the one who put this system together. I'm the one who put trees on the earth. 
I'm the one who provides for the birds of the air. Verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus' point is this, what, what, what is all of this worry getting you? You think you can add a minute to your life? You think you can add a year to your life? Man, there's, the, there's this, this, this movement right now called biohacking, where people are trying to figure out like how to extend life dramatically. And it's like, you know, fine, like go, tr- tr- try all that stuff. But, but Jesus says, all your anxiety, all your worry, all that, all that heaviness, you think it can add a single hour to your life? Like, think about this, guys. That's what he's saying. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? You know, you're so worried about your clothes? Look at the flowers. Look at how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I just told you clothing was extremely expensive. Well, guess what a king's clothing cost? Guess what a king's clothing looked like? And Solomon was the richest of the kings of Israel. Can you imagine what what he had? And Jesus says, I'm telling you, go look at the lilies. Maybe over these last few weeks, you got out and got to look at creation. And at this time of fall in northern Michigan, it's pretty incredible. You go out there and look at how the hillside is dressed. And it's like, man, it's hard to envision anything more beautiful than that. It's, it's, it's hard. And Jesus is saying, yeah, look, look at the flowers. Look at these things. They, they don't work for it at all. They're not, they're not striving. They're not anxious. They're just, they're just beautiful because I made them beautiful. That, that's, that's, how I, that's how I work. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So then he's saying, okay, those leaves, have you looked at them today? Because <laughs> most of them are on the ground. Most of them are getting raked up by your neighbor and getting thrown in the, in the, in the, in the, in the trash. Most of them are on the floor of the forest, getting you know, walked on by, by wildlife. They're, they're done. The grass withers and it fades and it's gone in a blink. And yet God, God puts that kind of glory out there. And Jesus says, do you know who you are? You're made in the image of God. You're, you're the crown of creation. You, and, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're actually reunited to the Father in heaven. You don't think he cares about you more than he cares about that stuff? If he feeds the birds and lets the flowers be that beautiful, you don't think he cares about you? You don't think he has a plan for you? So verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? He says, take a breath. Take a breath. There's a different game. There's, there's a different kingdom. There's a different master. And Jesus wants us to turn our heart and attention in that direction. Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about the material realities of your life, all the stuff that money can buy you. But why does Jesus make such a big deal out of anxiety? He, he touches on that multiple times in this text. And I, I, I want to be gentle here because anxiety is extremely tender. It's extremely serious. Uh, in our cultural moment, there's a, a very high percentage of people that are navigating some, some level of anxiety. And uh, if you've seen the statistics, one of the heartbreakers of our current culture is the number, the percentage of young people that are dealing with anxiety. Uh, even uh, young teenagers dealing with anxiety at incredible rates. And so I, I'm not, I don't want to be uh, ruthless here or, or harsh. I want to be gentle, but I do want to be clear because Jesus is actually addressing anxiety. 
He point blank dresses, addresses anxiety. Now, now, what is anxiety? Well, the word that Jesus is using is a word that means to fall apart. It means to, to come apart at the seams. It's not referring to normal concern. There, there are general concerns that are appropriate and right. Um, the, the Greek word that Jesus uses has the sense of unduly concerned, overly concerned. And you say, well, man, how, how do I know if I'm overly concerned? Well, I think you move into anxiety when the worries that you have have become so overwhelming that you start to sin in response to those concerns. The way that you talk to other people, the way that you treat other people, the way that you treat your own body, the things that you start to believe about God and about yourself and about others. I think that those are some of the evidence that you are beginning to move from genuine concern to unduly concerned to this anxiety that Jesus wants us to turn away from. But as you get to verses 32 and 33, Jesus is basically saying this, if you are anxious, then I want to invite you to reconsider where your treasure is. See, Jesus doesn't want you to stay anxious. and He doesn't want you to just scold you away from anxiety. He wants to offer you something better. He wants to offer you a vision of the world that actually will address this anxiety, these very things that are bubbling up in your heart that are become unduly concerning to you. Jesus in verse 32 says, the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He's like, so there's plenty of people out there chasing after this stuff. But if you're a follower of Jesus, your father, he knows everything you need. He knows before you pray. He knows before you ask. We just were in, in the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer a few verses ago. And it's this idea of, of him providing our daily bread. Our Father in heaven knows what we need. And what he's saying is, you don't have to be anxious anymore. You, you don't have to worry about those things. Not like that. Those can be genuine concerns, but they don't have to become unduly concerning. They don't have to cause you to fall apart at the seams. And in verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see, from verse 19 through the end of this text, Jesus is telling us that everybody has something at the center of their soul that they treasure. What does it mean to treasure something? It means to look at it it means to fill your heart with it, with its beauty, with its value. It, it's a, it, to treasure something is to say, if I just have that, then I, then I have value. If I just have that, then everything will be okay. If I just have that, then, then like I, I, I've made it and I can sleep at night. Je Jesus is saying, everybody has something. It might be money, it might be career, it might be your security, it might be romance, it might be your family. Whatever it is, you're looking at it, and it's your treasure, and you're saying, if that gets threatened, I fall apart at the seams. If that thing is in danger, I don't know how to cope with my life, because that's where I'm finding my value. That's where I'm finding my security. If I could have this, it will all be worth it. And everyone in this room has something on earth that they're doing that about. Everybody does. Everybody's on this journey, whether they think so or not. And Jesus is inviting us to do the hard work of being honest about where our treasure is, because that's where our heart is. 
According to Jesus, whatever you value most is who you really are. And Jesus invites us to be honest about the fact that we cannot serve two masters, can't serve God and money at the same time. And then Jesus invites us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's one thing. It's not two things. The kingdom of God and and his righteousness is one thing. That's, That's the ultimate thing that Jesus says, go after that. That's the thing that should be at the center of your heart. That's the ultimate treasure. Jesus has been revealing the realities of his kingdom throughout, and now he's calling us to seek it. In other words, we have to be honest enough to locate our heart where our treasure actually is, and then we have to be captivated enough to relocate our heart to the true treasure of the world. You remember that David Foster Wallace quote I read a minute ago? Well, that's part of a bigger quote. And it's going to be on the screen uh, here here behind me. This is what David Foster, this was a commencement speech uh, in 2005 at Kenyon College. And this is what David Foster Wallace said. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship be it JC, that's Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan mother goddess, or the four noble truths, or some invaluable set of ethical principles. So he's saying the the compelling reason for choosing one of those is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in your life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Now, David Foster Wallace never never found the true treasure, as far as we know. And three years after he said these words, he took his own life. He never found that treasure. But friends, do do you recognize that that is exactly what Jesus is trying to do here? That Jesus is absolutely trying to help us find that ultimate treasure. David Foster Wallace might not have been sure where the real treasure was, But Jesus is saying, it's right here. Seek it. Seek means to look, to look for. And Jesus is saying, let me show you what you so desperately need to see. And once you see it, it'll fill your whole body with light. It'll give light to your heart. You know, in Colossians chapter 2, this is what Paul says to us. He invites us to see the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, here's what you guys need. You need knowledge of God's mystery. What's that mystery? It's Christ. Christ is packed full of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the greatest treasure. And guess what? If you find that treasure, it changes everything. You see, just a couple years after Jesus preached this sermon, these followers that he's talking to right here on this mountainside, Jesus has been crucified and he's dead and they are hiding in a, in a room. They are scared to death to go to public, go in the public because they think they picked the wrong horse. 
They think the guy that they followed for those three years was the wrong one, that he didn't come through, that he actually died on that cross and the game's over. And they are sitting up there and they are scared. But you know what happens? A few women show up and they say to these guys, we got something to tell you. He's, he's alive. The, the Jesus that you just spent three years with, it's all true. He actually conquered death. He's not in the grave anymore. And as, as, as those disciples then begin to realize that this is true, that Jesus really did conquer death, you know, they went from being scared pussycats to being roaring lions. And almost all of them lost their life to share this good news about who Jesus is with the world. In other words, they gave all of themselves. They gave everything they had in order to be about the work of God in the world because they found out that it's all true. That this Jesus who actually said that he was going to, to rescue the world actually conquered death. Death was undefeated before Jesus. It's been undefeated since Jesus. But Jesus conquered death. See, the lights went on for those disciples and their kingdom changed. The king that they served changed. Their master changed. Their priorities changed. And they gave generously. They gave everything they had because they realized who Christ was. You know, in another passage in the New Testament, Paul says that the follower of Jesus can have a peace that passes understanding. Never one time, never one time are we given the indication that the Christian has an easy life. It's not your circumstances, your earthly circumstances that change. Jesus is not suggesting that. He's saying that your eyesight changes. He's saying that the light gets turned on, that your eyes are given sight, and it floods into your heart all the way down. And when that changes your priorities, all of a sudden, your hands are wide open. All of a sudden, the giving flows. All of a sudden, being part of God's work in the world makes all the sense. We were talking about what things is it easy to give to and what, what is it hard to give to? Man, the indication that Jesus is giving is when that light gets turned on, when you see who he is, giving makes all the sense in the world. You see, if you found him and we face this reality of anxiety and these reasons that we have around us for fear and concern, if you found the true treasure, here's the news. It's all going to be all right in the end. It is all going to be all right in the end. That the worst case scenario for a Christian is life forever with God in a place where there is no sorrow, suffering, or sin. That's the worst case scenario. You know, there might be trials. There will be trials in the here and now. But you can realize that those trials are actually not giant monsters. That the New Testament has the audacity to say that these trials are like comparatively... They are like light and momentary afflictions that don't compare to the glory that is to come. You know, there's a, a word picture that I use at almost every funeral, and it's from C.S. Lewis. And he says that at the end of our life, when all of our adventures are over, we are going to realize that this life was just the cover and the title page of a story that goes on forever and ever. And when we die, that is just the beginning of chapter one, in which every chapter gets better than the one before it. If this life that you're leading right now is just the cover and the title page, and the story hasn't, the real story hasn't even started yet, and it goes on forever and ever, and every chapter gets better than the one before it, you think that might change your perspective on some financial struggles? 
You think that might change your perspective on what brand of clothing you buy? You think that might change your perspective on how you use your time? You think that maybe, just maybe, it would cause this anxiety level in your life to diminish incredibly as you recognize that the only one who can actually keep you has you. He's got you. And that's the good news of the gospel. The the good news of the gospel is that in the end, it's not just consolation. You don't just get a hug. It's, 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 uh, it, it comes all back. It's not just consolation, it's restoration. God makes the whole place new. That's the future that we look forward to. And the more that that has sunk into our hearts, the more that we recognize that that's the outcome that Jesus offers, the more we realize that this is the flourishing life. And Jesus isn't, uh, he's not uh, overstating it. He's actually inviting us into it. So as we come to the table, uh, we come to this table for this very reason. We come to the table to eat this bread and to drink this cup, to remember that if Jesus didn't do what he did on the cross, if he didn't conquer sin and Satan and death, then we, we meant anxiety would be the most logical thing in the whole world. We, we should be tied up in knots. We should be coming apart at the seams. When you talk to your neighbor and they're scared about the future, man, if they're not a follower of Jesus, that makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? The Sermon on the Mount is inviting us to be a different kind of people who serve a different kind of king. And this is one of the places where it's most on display. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this this, uh, complicated but rich text. We thank you for the call of Jesus upon us in regard to our treasure, our heart, who our master is. God, we thank you for Jesus warning us about our ability to even evaluate this correctly, our ability to even see it clearly. God, we, we, we need your help. We need the help of our brothers and sisters around us. God, we actually really do believe that the, the heavenly treasure is the better treasure. We really do believe that you're the, you're the better master than money. We, we believe those things, but God, it, it is hard to live them out. So would you help us today?